0: Turn to Psalm 139. Just a few more weeks in the Psalms. I'll read these words for us. This is God's Word. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would open our ears uh, so that we might hear uh, wonderful and glorious things from your word this morning so we pray that you would do that in every single one of us this morning that we would behold your glory and we pray in jesus name amen so i had this saved uh on my new york times app of this this column that um um ross uh, douthat wrote uh, um in 2018 titled the return of paganism and um He essentially is saying that that people are not uh, not as as nearly as as non-religious or even anti-God as we think, particularly in America. So then he's then then describing uh, paganism as this new American religion. And the reason uh, that he says this is because of the secularization of the church in America. So he describes it this way. He says, so perhaps instead of uh, secularization, it makes sense to talk about the fragmentation and personalization of Christianity. To describe America as a nation of Christian heretics, if you will, in which traditional churches have been supplanted by self-help gurus and spiritual political entrepreneurs. These figures cobble together pieces of the old orthodoxies take out the inconvenient bits and pitch them to mass audiences that want part of the old-time religion, but nothing too unsettling or challenging or aesthetic. So he's saying is that this type of uh, secularization of the church, which is prevalent even in our own city in Augusta, has weakened the church greatly, and what has, what has begun to step into its place is paganism. So he goes on to say this, essentially defining what he means by paganism. So what is this conception? It's simply this, that divinity is fundamentally inside the world rather than outside it, that God or the gods or being are ultimately part of nature rather than external creator, and that meaning and morality and metaphysical experience are sought in a fuller communion with the imminent world rather than a leap toward the transcendent, rather than a leap towards a a God who's out there somewhere. So paganism, I think, more than atheism, is more of a danger to the church than anything else, I think. And, and, and we know this because this is what the New Testament, talk, New Testament writers who are writing to the, to the churches in the New Testament, this is what they talk about over and over again. They, 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 they talk about different forms of teaching that will try to enter the church and will enter the church. And just so you know, they're not saying these, uh, these charges into the church with really bad doctrine is not being led by a bunch of atheists who don't believe in God. More often, the New Testament writers are saying, no, these people will arise from your own ranks. there will be members of your church, maybe, who have gone astray. Or people who would just come in and, and kind of uh, hide as a Christian or pretend that they're a Christian and, and bring in really bad doctrine. That's the warning that we are continually uh, given in the New Testament. And the only way in which we can avoid this, the only way in which we can combat it, is by having a vision of God that is so great and so glorious that you are left saying as David is left saying in verse 6, when he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It It is too high. I cannot attain it. Essentially, he's saying, this is so amazing. God is so amazing that I can't even wrap my mind around this. Because the minute you think you've wrapped your mind around God is the minute you are probably going astray, just so you know. You will never be able to do it. We are always saying, like David, that this is too wonderful for me. It's unbelievable. So David is communicating... Uh, to us something that is so far beyond our reach, so so incomprehensible that we should be able to feel it. And the way we feel it may make us uneasy. It may make us feel insignificant because a lot of us in here are very smart and we want to be able to grasp everything and understand everything. And then it may, feel, feel, may make us feel that we are not as important as we thought we were. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God says that to us. My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So hopefully, reading that, we may feel his, his close presence. We may, we may feel uh, uh, more deeply loved by this great God of the universe. We may feel more deeply cherished by Him. And so then we're able to say, as Moses asked the people in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, when he says to the people, For what nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call it? What David does in this psalm is he's taking us from knowing about God, so having all this knowledge stored up about God that we kind of puff ourselves up over, to knowing of God. So it would be very easy for me to give you a theological lecture, and I know some of you probably would really enjoy that, but a theological uh, lecture on God's omniscience, His omnipresence, um, His sovereignty, which is all here in Psalm 139, and we'll touch on that a little bit. But Alexander McLaren, he kind of he frames it like this, uh, describing David, that David is not, not merely just talking about omniscience, but a knowledge which knows him altogether. He's not merely talking about omnipresence, but a presence which he can nowhere escape. He's not merely talking about creative power or God's sovereignty, but a power which shaped our psalmist and fills and thrills his soul. Hopefully, that's where we'll get. So David communicates all of this in our psalm today. He, he does this by telling us uh, three things that are true about God, which then in turn makes three things true about us. And that's how we'll frame this, this, uh, this text today. One is that you are safe in God's thoughts. Two, that you are safe in God's presence. And then three, you are safe... In God's hands. And then, how do we respond to that? Okay, So, safe in God's thoughts, His presence, and His hand. And then, how do we respond to that? So, first, safe in God's thoughts. In verses 1-6. through six. Um, You may have said this phrase before, maybe to your spouse. Um, I say it to my kids often. Um, but it, the, the phrase is, I know you better than you know yourself. I know you better than you know yourself. Which is true to an extent. It is true. You could say, I do know you better than you know yourself because I got a little bit more wisdom on you, but it's only true to a certain point because there there comes a time where you actually don't know that particular person better than they know themselves. And I know my kids are going to use this against me later. So, but it's true because you truly don't know the depth of what is going on deep down inside of you. But David is telling us that God knows that. In fact, God knows every person who ever lived or will live in this intimate of a way. So the truth is, God, whether you you feel this or not, God is intimately involved with you. More than anyone else in the world is, God is intimately involved with you. And it's only, only God who can do something like this. Not, there's, no, there's no other person in the world that knows you the way God knows you. One pastor put it this way. He says, uh, before other people, we stand as opaque beehives. Meaning we, we stand as kind of this like, clear, uh, un- unclear glass beehive. They can see the thoughts go in and out of us. But what, but what work they do inside of a person, they cannot tell. Before God, however, we are as glass beehives. And all that our thoughts are doing within us, He perfectly sees and understands. So David goes on in these verses to describe to us in what ways God knows us in verses 1-6. through six. But the first thing we have to understand before we get to those verses uh, is... The first thing we have to look at is how how God searches each of us and knows us. And that's found in verse 1. When David exclaims, O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. So what does it mean that God searches you? because this is something that comes up again later in the psalm if you caught that right at the end of the psalm David says this again as a prayer so this has to be something important because David winds up praying this in the very last verse so it's something that we need to be thoughtful about so this word search in the Hebrew uh, originally means to to dig so it's this idea of digging in the ground for precious metals or to investigate uh, something. So meaning you're, you're digging to, to find out more about it. So, so one Hebrew dictionary put it this way, or said the primary idea that is, that is perhaps being communicated when this word searching is being used in the Old Testament is searching in the earth by digging so that kindred roots are found. That's primarily the, the way in which it's used. So, uh, in the book of Job, in the Old Testament, Job chapter 13, verse 9, uh, Job asks this really important question using this same word, search, that I think is a really important question for you to ask yourself right now in this moment. Because he's talking about God searching his friends out. And if you know anything about Job, his friends were not the greatest friends, who claimed to know God in a way that nobody else in the world knew God and knew Job in some some ways. And so Job asked them this question. Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? Will it be well with you when God searches you out? And he will do that. I should say, he is doing that. Right at this very moment. He is searching you out. So if he's doing this, is he finding, going back to that primary way in which it's used, is he finding kindred roots? Essentially, is he finding the gospel when he searches you out? Or is He finding something else that you're trusting in? Psalm, uh, the psalmist in Psalm 44:21 says, uh, makes this very, very clear to say, Would not God discover this? He's going to discover it. It's all laid before Him anyways. For He knows the secrets of the heart, the psalmist says. He knows your secrets. And David, more than anyone else, knows God's searching firsthand. So if you remember the story of David, it was David in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 who tries to hide his sin. And this is not just like the sin. He wasn't, it wasn't just like these, these things that we like to categorize as innocent sins. We would, if we were categorizing sin, which we don't do that, but if we were going to do that, Uh, David has committed the two sins that we would probably put at the top of our category list, which are adultery and murder. And so in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David is is trying to hide his sin and is found out. And who was he found out by? It's not Nathan the prophet, if that's where you're going. It's not Nathan the prophet. Nathan was sent to confront David, the, the text tells us here in Second Samuel, but the thing that David had done, so adultery and murder displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. So God finds him out. God, God knows the secrets of his heart, and he sends Nathan to David, and this is what Nathan says to David, speaking for God. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring uh, calamity on you. Before, you. before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. So David is an astute guide for our journey. This is not one that's standing over you and saying, look how good I am. David is saying, no, I have been there and I continue to be there. I continue to feel God's hand upon me because not only does he know the pain of God's searching, he also knows the awareness that it brings both of himself and of God. That's why David can write Psalm 139 because he's experienced God in this way. And notice that David is not bitter at God in the writing. He actually has a clearer focus of who he is. And sometimes it takes walking through your sin and having your, your sin revealed to you to get to that point. So I would say if you have uh, good brothers and sisters in your life, hopefully they're in this church, um, and, they, and, and they're and they pointing sin out in your life. Actually, I'll just say this. This is not in my notes because this would be dangerous. But... I would say be really open with those people who are around you, who you have covenanted with at this church, and tell them, look, if you see something in my life that is sinful or wrong or where I'm off, please give them permission to point it out to you. Because most people I'm telling you are probably afraid to do that. Give them permission to point it out to you. And that way you'll have an easier time. And don't use it as an opportunity to go. I've been meaning to say something to you. But use it as an opportunity to help a brother or sister grow in their relationship with Jesus. Do that. If you're married, do it with your your spouse first. If you have kids, do it with your kids as well. Let them be able to speak into your life. And then kind of work your way out from there. Okay? That was a side note. All right? So letting people have your sin reveal to you, because sometimes it takes you walking through sin to have Nathans in your life pointing it out, saying, you are the man, this is what God says, this is what you've done, you need to repent and believe the gospel again. Sometimes it takes that for you to grow and to see God more clearly. Sometimes it takes walking through suffering. So Asius C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, which is a famous quote, you've probably heard it, but he says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So in a proper response to to any of that, at least for the Christian, so as to avoid this kind of practical paganism, is to acknowledge the truth, reality, and relevancy of God in all of us not just here on a Sunday, not just during your missional community or when you're studying it, but all of life. Acknowledging that. Even when it's difficult. Even even when you don't understand what you're walking through. Even when life doesn't make sense or the world doesn't make sense. Acknowledging the truth, reality, and relevancy of God in all of those things. This is what David does in verses 2 through 6. This is how he describes it, how he describes God to us. He says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So so David gets to the point that he has to admit, I am safe in God's thoughts. God is constantly thinking about me. God is constantly aware of, of, of everything that is going on in my life, even before it happens, and therefore I am safe. There is nothing, David says, there is nothing that God does or thinks that is outside of His purview. Nothing. And just so you know, this is not, God is not an angry tyrant that is, that is constantly thinking about you uh, so as to, to think of new ways to kind of control you. That's not who God is. Uh, God is not some overbearing Parent who is trying to keep tabs on your every move so as to manipulate you—that's not who God is. Now, this is the loving God of the universe. David says, "Who is working all things for the good of His people? Who is? You could kind of picture it this way: as as God is our shepherd, that He is He is keeping us from this. He is walking us through this kind of uh, kind of dark trail." And he's leading us to these green pastures that we're not, we're not exactly sure how good these green pastures are, um, but he's kind of giving us a little bit of light so that we're led along the way. But, but beside us, on both sides of us, is just like this, this cliff that if we were to go either way, we're going to fall off to our death. God is leading us in that way. As a, as a, he's leading us to green pastures and keeping us from the, the cliff's edge. So not only are you safe in God's thoughts, you are also safe in His presence, which is pretty amazing to think about. Because to be in the presence of God, uh, for a lot of people in the Bible, was, was instant death. So to say that we are safe in God's presence is almost kind of an oxymoron. But let's listen to what David has to say in verses 7-12. through 12. He says, he, he starts with the question, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So everywhere you go, David says, God is present. God sees you. Nothing nothing is hidden from His sight. And this has been true from the very beginning of the Bible. So if you remember Genesis chapter 3, our first parents forget this attribute of God pretty immediately when the fall comes. And what do they try to do? The very first thing they try to do is hide from God. And so they hide in the bushes They try to get away from His presence which we learned in our study of Genesis, is impossible and foolish. But it's a natural human reaction to hide, uh, to want to escape God's presence. So much so that you could read verses 7 through 12 through a very negative lens if you wanted to. If you had a very uh, kind of uh, messed up image of God because of just kind of you were in a bad church situation or family situation and your picture of God is just ruined because of that, you you could very easily look at these verses and say, God is is terrible. He's terrible. I I want nothing to do with him. So you could read these and, and see God as this cosmic killjoy who is constantly standing over you and waiting to tell you no and slapping your hand at every instance he can. But that's not the way David is talking about God in these verses. As one commentator noted, David is is actually still meditating on God's attribute of omniscience here. Because he's giving the reason why God is omniscient. Why does God know all? It's because he is everywhere to see all and know it. So David is not fearful or or dreadful about God's everywhere presence. He's actually comforted by it. As should we. We should be comforted by that. Because God's omnipresence is a reminder that God is in constant care of his creation. And especially those who are his. Constantly taking care of. So we can look around the world and we can say and agree and say yes the, the the world is without permanence, the world seems really shaky on the surface, but we know as as believers uh, we know that there is permanence with God, and we know that that it's this God of permanence that that never moves that is that is the rock, who never changes. we know that everything else because of that uh, is stable. That nothing is out of His control. Because as Francis Schaeffer often, often used to say, and there's a book titled this way that he wrote, God is there, and He is not silent. He's always there, and He's never silent. So He is everywhere, at work, always. And because of this, we are safe in His constant presence. And for that reason, some Old Testament scholars our Bible scholars believe that that verse seven is better translated to ask, "Where could I go? Where could I go from your presence?" Instead of "Where shall I go?" So if you if you're translating it "Where shall I go?", um, which is what the ESV does, uh, "Where shall I go?" There's this, It kind of it kind of plays on your mind to say like you're kind of. It's almost like you're looking for a place to go that you could hide. Where shall I go from his presence? So if you switch the translation to where could I go, it changes the whole meaning, not the whole meaning, but it changes it a little bit more in our minds at least to go, there's nowhere I can go. If someone were to kidnap me and uh, lock me in a coffin and bury me in the ground, which would be my nightmare, um, and bury me in the ground, uh, God would be there. You could not escape his presence. No one could take you away from God. There's no place that you could go that you could hide from him. And David actually gives three examples of places that we may think God isn't, but we find that he actually is there. So in verse 8, David says he is in the highest places and the lowest places that you can go. So he's, so maybe you think if I can just uh, uh, this is how I kind of think about it if I can just if I can just climb higher than God intellectually if I can just if I can just learn more and kind of outsmart God and outsmart uh, these Christians and outsmart the church because Christianity is for the simple something that we kind of lean on then I can escape God but very quickly they learn that He is also there. And even at the very lowest, which is hell, and David uses the word sheol, even in hell, God is there as well. And that's in His judicial aspect, which is a terrifying thought. The the uh, prophet Amos summarizes it this way in Amos chapter nine, verse two, talking about God. He says, "If they dig, or speaking for God, if they dig in sheol, if they dig into hell, from there shall my hand take them." If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. So that's the first way, the first place that we probably get, the lowest and the highest places. In verses 9 through 10, David says that, that God is at every stretch. He says, from the east to the west, God is there. There is no place, uh, in, in, there is no, no amount of distance that you could get away from God. And immediately, I'm sure for some of you, Jonah comes to your mind as the perfect example of this. When God tells Jonah to go and to preach to Nineveh, Jonah jumps on a boat and essentially says to the the captain of the ship, he essentially says to him, take me as far away from this location as possible. Get me as far away from God as you possibly can, is essentially what Jonah is saying to this person. And then Jonah quickly finds out, quickly finds out, that God is everywhere present. Even present in the belly of a fish and the depths of the ocean. So you at every stretch. And then in verses 11 through 12, David tells us that God is present even in the darkness. And I think, I think this truth about God's presence in the darkness may be the most relevant for most of us. Well, it has to be. For one, if you're a believer, God has rescued you from darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. So you know that. So that's, it's relevant for all of us because we've all been in darkness. And if it wasn't for God coming into the darkness, we wouldn't be here right now. Or maybe, maybe you're in this boat. Maybe, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you're really struggling with things right now, uh, and maybe you're trying to hide from God in the darkness presently. So maybe you are running to sin to get away from God. David expresses this sentiment in verse 11. He says, surely the darkness shall cover me. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're thinking, oh, the darkness will cover me and so I'll, I'll run to sin. Surely surely that will hide me from God. And maybe then, if I can just sin enough, maybe then God will leave me alone. And yet again, He does not. Because He is there in the darkness with you. Verse 12. David says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is Light with you. So Terry and I had a pastor in, um, in Columbia when we were in college. And he used, he used to always call God the hound of heaven. And I always thought that was so cool. Like I thought that was just like a great image. And I, I never knew it was a poem. And um, some of you, maybe you didn't know it was a poem either. But it's this poem that was written by a poet named Francis Thompson. And the poem is actually inspired by, he inspired by verses 7 through 12 to write it. And he's, he's, he's describing how he unsuccessfully tries to hide from God, the hound of heaven, because the hound is constantly after him. And this is what he writes. It's your poetry lesson for the year. He says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him, and under running laughter, up visade hopes I sped and shot precipitated, adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears, from those strong feet that followed, followed after. So let me just say this. If you are here and you are not a Christian, uh, or you're listening to these words later, these words of Francis Thompson should stir you. Because God is the hound of heaven. And if He wants you, He will have you. And one day you will have to stand before God. And if you do so apart from Christ, you will be doomed. If you continue to say, I'll keep running. One day you will have to give an account. The hound of heaven will find you. And it may not be in a good spot. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 in the New Testament says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. So know this. That God is the hound of heaven who is coming after you not to ruin your fun, but but so that you might be saved. So come to Christ and hide in Him. So finally... Our final point, safe in God's hand in verses 13 through 18. And these these verses may be some of the most well-known verses of this particular psalm as they communicate just how intimately God does know you. So there is a good reason that pro-life advocates like to quote verses 13 through 14 to communicate God's uh, continual design of humanity within the womb of a woman so much so that Uh, Charles Spurgeon even said about these verses, uh, We need not go to the ends of the earth for marvels, nor even across our own threshold. They abound in our own bodies. We can marvel at God's work of creation in our own bodies. We're able to see the greatness of God. But this isn't what David is trying to communicate even though these are great verses for, for us as pro-life advocates, great verses to use, but this is not what David is trying to teach you. What David is seeking to communicate here in these verses is that even from our very beginning, in, in the womb, even from our very beginning to beyond our ending, there is no separation from God, ever. Ever and that God knows every day that you were formed for. Just look at verse 16. David says, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. So even before we were formed, God saw us. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So even before there were days... For you, uh, God knew what they were. He formed them for you. So David wants you to know, or wants you to see, like we learned uh, before, is that God, God is the one who has numbered your days. He is a God who is not far from you. He's with you in the womb. Even before that. A God who is sovereignly reigning, who is... Perfectly reigning over his creation. And David wants you to know that you that, that you that you are and have always been safe in the hands of God. Jesus knew this kind of safety. Even at, even at the very worst possible moments. Uh, and, and knowing, and Jesus knowing, because he's God incarnate, so he knows what's going to happen before knowing what's about to happen, Jesus praise this prayer in Luke 23:46. He says, "Father, this is from the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." Knowing what was about to happen when he said that, which was death, which was separation from God. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. And so Jesus is our forerunner in that way. That we can safely say, because of what, because Jesus prayed the spirit to God and died the death that we re, we deserved, we can safely say to to the Father, "Into Your hands I commit my spirit," knowing that His plan for us is good and right and true and perfect because of what Christ has done. So quickly, just a response to God's greatness here in the last verses. I won't read all of this for us, but. But David's response to the greatness of God is not to run from God, which would be a, a, an appropriate response at some level. It's not to run from God, but to pray just as Jesus prayed Luke 23, essentially. And what this prayer communicates is David's desire to do what James chapter 4, verse 7 tells us to do in the New Testament. James writes, "...submit yourselves therefore to God." Resist the devil, or resist evil, and he will flee from you. And then James follows that up with, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is essentially David's prayer. David, in verses 19 19 through 24, makes known that he wants a relationship with this God who searches him out. That he wants to be done with sin that he wants a a deepness and an intimacy with God that is beyond what he is currently experiencing. He wants to go even deeper. He wants to be even more intimate with God. And what is David's prayer for this but the truth of verse 1? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So David, what David is doing here is David is praying that God would use the knowledge that he has of him to lead him in the right way. So David is praying, God, you know me, Uh, you're going to continue to know me, you're going to continue to search me, and I want you to use what you're learning about me and what you know about me to draw me closer to yourself and lead me in the right way. Lead me in the right way. And then at the same time, because this isn't just a one-way relationship, it's a two-way relationship, and at the same time, David uses the knowledge that he has of God, so knowing of God, not just knowing about him, to walk in this right way that God is leading him down to avoid falling into the trap of practical paganism. And he does this by constantly looking at the greatness of God. So let us set our eyes there as well. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know us, you see us, you are with us, and your hand is always on us. I pray that we would live according to this greatness. Search us, O God, and know our hearts, and lead us in the everlasting way. In Christ's name, amen.